turn one more time to Luke chapter 23. And the focus of our attention tonight is going to fall on verses 47 through 56. But in order to remind us of the context, I'm going to begin reading back in verse 44. So Luke 23:44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Father, we come to your word now, and we confess as we were singing that every heart we hope to teach is only by your grace. God, I hope to teach us, to remind us, to encourage us tonight, but only by the power of your spirit, only by your grace can that happen. So we pray now that through your word and by your spirit that you would come and you would speak to us and teach our hearts, warm our hearts, move us to action and to great love for you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it goes without saying that by almost any standards, the burial of Jesus was not a proper one. He wasn't laid in a special location like the patriarchs Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were. He wasn't buried with great ceremony like so many of the kings of Judea had been. There was no memorial service for him. No speech was delivered at his graveside. There wasn't even a company of devout men to lay his body in the tomb as would be the case in a few chapters in the book of Acts with the martyr Stephen. No, instead, as we read Luke's account, what we find is a very small funeral party and a hastily put-together burial trying to beat the Sabbath clock and no funeral service at all. Jesus' body was simply taken down from the cross, wrapped in a plain white sheet, and laid in a borrowed tomb all within three or four hours of his death. There was no time even, of course, to prepare his body by clothing it properly or by perfuming it. Those are simply the facts. And yet... In spite of all that seems to have been missing from the burial of Jesus, these final 10 verses of Luke 23 paint a beautiful picture, don't they? No, Jesus didn't have the burial that Abraham had or Isaac or Jacob or David or even Stephen in the New Testament. He didn't have what any of these men were privileged to have. He didn't have even the tribute and the honor that most of us will have paid us when we are someday returned to the dust. And yet, the burial of Jesus was actually a marvelous burial. And 
this is actually a heartwarming portion of scripture. I think you'll agree. And I want to show you that simply by walking you through these last 10 verses in consecutive order and just pointing out some things as we go. So when we consider this strange, unusual, improper, but wonderful burial of Jesus, we should think, first of all, about the eulogy. Verse 47, the eulogy. Now, I know there was no actual eulogy delivered at Jesus' burial, but if there had been, the words that the centurion said here in verse 47 would have been a good place to start, wouldn't they? Without delivering a formal eulogy, this man eulogized Jesus nonetheless, didn't he? The words he spoke were perfectly fitting for this occasion. Certainly this man was innocent. Or perhaps it's better translated, certainly this man was righteous. And we can all agree with those words, I hope. In one sense, this man is just stating the obvious, right? Of course Jesus was innocent. Of course he was righteous. And so on one level, there's nothing remarkable necessarily about what this man said. And yet these words are remarkable when we consider who said them. This was not one of Jesus' disciples speaking, of course. This wasn't one of the faithful women who had followed in the crowd. This was a Roman soldier speaking these words, a man who had been trained to kill, a man who was paid to kill. And make no mistake, um, Roman soldiers were different from soldiers that we know in our country today. In one sense, our soldiers are trained to kill and paid to kill as well, but not like these men, not brutally, not convicted criminals hung up on a cross to suffocate to death in their own bodily fluid. These were brutal men. And this was no novice. Remember, Luke tells us that this was a centurion, i.e. he was a commander of a battalion of a hundred other men who were trained to fight and kill in the name of Rome. And so he must have been an experienced man. He had been at what he was doing for some time in order to have worked his way up to the rank of centurion or battalion commander. And so what we have here is a man who had probably participated in and or overseen the execution of dozens perhaps hundreds of people over the course of his military career. And he has just witnessed the execution of three more of them here in this chapter. Jesus has just been crucified as an enemy of the state. And the last thing you would expect a Roman centurion to say about a crucified man would be certainly this man was innocent, right? That's not what you expect him to say. And it's not just that he says, well, perhaps we acted a little bit too quickly, or it's possible we got the wrong guy here. No, he says, certainly this man was innocent. Surely this man was not the criminal we have just made him out to be. This centurion watched how Jesus died with no fear and with no rage and with no bitterness and with no resentment. He heard Jesus' words of forgiveness toward his accusers in verse 34 and his words of mercy towards the thief in verse 43 and his words of faith in his father in verse 46. He heard all these things and the centurion came to the immediate conclusion, this is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary criminal. This is no criminal at all. This man was innocent. And as I said, the centurion's words were even stronger than that. In the original Greek, what he actually seems to have said was this man was righteous. Righteous. Not just, well, he didn't commit this particular crime that we accused him of, but here is a godly, righteous man. And it's one thing when a group of friends or family gathers beside a lifeless body and says nice things about the person, right? It's one thing if your pastor or your children or one of your good friends eulogizes you at the funeral. 
you expect them to say good things about you, right? But what would it say about a man or a woman if his or her avowed enemy showed up at the funeral and stood up during the share time and said to the people gathered for the occasion, you know, I know this isn't probably what you'd expect me to say, but there's no getting around it. This was a godly, righteous man. No one can dispute that. What would you think if someone who is an enemy stood up and said that? In essence, that's what we have here in verse 47, isn't it? Here's a man who had opposed Jesus, a man who was among the group who had just mocked Jesus and crucified him, a man who on one level had no business eulogizing the master, wonderfully doing so nonetheless. And it's a beautiful thing. And let me say this as well. These same observations could be made when anyone, anywhere, eulogizes Jesus. Couldn't it have been said of Peter when he stood up to preach Christ at Pentecost? People could have looked at Peter and said, who is this guy standing up to extol Jesus of Nazareth? Isn't this the same one who ran off and left him just a few weeks ago? Isn't this the guy who went into hiding? And couldn't this, something similar have been said of the Apostle Paul when he began to preach? People would say, well, I thought this was the fellow who made a name for himself by rounding up the Christians and throwing them in jail. And is he now waxing lyrical about how wonderful their master is? And isn't that what some people must have thought? Just like the centurion, you never expect Peter, you never expect Paul to deliver the eulogy for the Lord Jesus. And yet, because they seemed like the least likely candidates, because they had so mistreated and defamed Jesus, the fact that they now praised him made their words all the more powerful, right? If even their minds could be changed, if even the Roman centurion could call Jesus righteous, then maybe there is something to this carpenter from Nazareth after all. I think it's an amazing thing that God had an enemy become the man that delivered the eulogy as Jesus breathed his last. And I think the same thing could be said of you and me that we're saying of this centurion that we say of Paul and of Peter. When we see ourselves for what we really are, when we consider how dreadfully we sometimes behave and think, when many of us remember our past, we might well ask ourselves, you know, who am I to be standing in this gathering of people singing the praises of Jesus? Who am I to be telling my friends they really ought to come with us to the Easter Sunday? Who am I to be delivering the eulogy for Jesus? Well, maybe you're just the right person. Perhaps your background or your ongoing struggles make your eulogy all the more compelling. Perhaps your friends will hear what you have to say and say, Now, I know she's no goody two-shoes. I know her past. I was there. I remember what she was like in high school. I remember what he was. And if he's now inviting me for Easter, if he's now reading the Bible during lunch, if she's now participating in the worship team at her church, then maybe there's something to this Jesus after all. If the unlikeliest of candidates seem to have changed their minds about God and about religion and about Jesus, maybe I should hear them out. Maybe God really does change people. Maybe there is something to this Jesus. What a powerful thing it can be when someone who was once an enemy of Jesus changes his mind, changes her mind, and can now say, certainly this man was righteous. That's the eulogy. But now I want you also to notice the mourners. In verses 48 and 49, the mourners. When Jesus died, his mourners, of course, first of all, consisted of the women who had accompanied him from Galilee in verse 49. These women who had always supported him, who had always been there 
who had always remained true, these women who in many ways were far more brave than the 12 male disciples of Jesus. And of course they were there. As we said already, their faithfulness all the way to the end is no real surprise. And we'll come back to them towards the end of our time tonight. But again, I want you to notice that what is astonishing among Jesus' mourners is not that some of the faithful were there, but that many of the unfaithful were there mourning him as well. And I think that's what we're to understand in verse 48. There were, as we noted on Sunday, crowds who came together that Friday morning and early Friday afternoon. And why does Luke tell us that they came together here in verse 48? To mourn Jesus? No. To demand his release? No. To see all the prophecies coming true? No. By and large, Luke tells us that the reason there were so many people standing around the cross this Friday afternoon was because the whole thing was, quote, a spectacle. They gathered, again, as we said on Sunday, the way people gather to watch a house fire, the way kids gather to watch a fight at school, the way everyone slows down to rubberneck when there's a major accident on the interstate. That's what was happening that day for most of the people. They didn't initially have any spiritual desire at all in coming out to watch Jesus be crucified. It was simply eye-catching. It was a spectacle. The most famous man in Jerusalem is now being condemned. Well, I certainly got to get over to the trash heap and see that, the people must have said to themselves. That's the only reason they were there, most of them, Luke says, because it was a spectacle. But here's the thing. By the time Jesus had breathed his last, after they had watched the way he died, In other words, after they had heard his sayings from the cross and seen his self-control and his trust in God, something changed in many of these people. People who had come together rubbing their hands, eager for the excitement, now left beating their breasts as a sign of mourning and grief. That's what beating a breast signified in the ancient world. It signified distress and grief. You may recall back in chapter 18 that Jesus spoke about a tax collector who was doing this very same thing. He was beating his breast. Why? Because he was grieving. He was distressed over his sin. And I think that is probably what we're seeing here in verse 48 as well. After watching this righteous man die, some of these people evidently felt some kind of remorse. Now, was there remorse repentance that leads to eternal life? I don't know that. But it seems at least that many people in the crowds felt stricken in their conscience over having gone out in such a flippant way to watch this righteous man die. And that brings up an interesting point. The question is, what changed these people's minds and hearts? What was it that struck their consciences? Well, Luke tells us in verse 48 that it was when they observed what had happened, that's when they began beating their breasts when they observed what had happened. In other words, it was simply the very way in which Jesus died which shook these people to the core. It was, as we said already, his words of forgiveness in verse 34 and his words of mercy in verse 43 and his words of faith in his Father in verse 46 that brought tears to their eyes and conviction upon their hearts. And surely it was also the way he was abused and the suffering he endured without whining, without murmuring that struck them as well. Watching the way in which Jesus died, these people's hearts were broken. And I point that out because we need to see how powerful Luke 23 can be. How powerful it can be to see, to be reminded of the way in which Jesus died. How powerful the crucifixion narrative actually can be in bringing sinners to repentance. 
When we share Jesus, most of us are prone, aren't we, to primarily share the why of the cross. In other words, we tend, when sharing the gospel with our friends and our coworkers, to focus on the questions of why Jesus died and why he rose and what it all means. And, of course, we have to do that. People will never be saved if they don't understand why Jesus had to die in their place and what they have to do in response. And yet, the truth is that people can sometimes understand the whys and the whats of the cross and still not come to saving faith. They can understand in their heads that Jesus died in the place of sinners without being moved in their souls to saving faith. Or to put it another way, they can understand that they should repent and believe because of Jesus but not actually do so. And so what they need, in addition to head knowledge, indispensable as it is, is for their hearts to be broken and their consciences to be smitten and their souls to be moved like these people's souls were moved here in verse 48. And very often, the tool that God may use in order to do this convicting, melting, and moving may be Luke 23. God may use the account not simply of why Jesus died, but of how he died, shamed and abused and denied and betrayed, and yet forgiving his enemies and trusting his Father and having mercy on sinners. It was the sight of how Jesus died that melted the hearts of the masses outside Jerusalem. It may well be the sight of how Jesus died that will melt the hearts of the masses in Cincinnati as well. So explain the why, but tell them the how as well, and I think you may be helped. Now thirdly, I want you to notice, in addition to the eulogy and the mourners, the pallbearer, verses 50 to 53, the pallbearer. Now in our American custom, six men are required to carry the deceased to his or her place of burial, right? And to be honest, I'm not sure what the first century Jewish custom may have been, But I can assure you that what took place in the burial of Jesus was not the norm. Instead of six strong men, as in our culture, or instead of a group of devout men, as in the case of Stephen the martyr, Acts chapter 8, there seems in this case to have only been one man who took responsibility for taking Jesus down from the cross and transporting him to the burial ground and placing his body in the tomb, namely Joseph of Arimathea. Now, perhaps Joseph employed a helper or two, but if... If he did, Luke doesn't tell us that, and neither do Mark or Matthew. John, incidentally, tells us that Nicodemus, another leader among the Jews, showed up with some spices and helped uh, Joseph to wrap the body in a linen cloth before it was laid in the tomb. But it would appear that Joseph himself was the lone pallbearer. He must have hoisted Jesus' corpse over his shoulder and carried him by himself to the tomb, which perhaps was somewhat nearby. The question is, where were the other disciples? They were there in verse 49. But where were Matthew and Peter and James and Andrew now? Why weren't they there to help? They were still hanging around on the outskirts of the crowd, but they didn't join in. Why? Why didn't they help Joseph? Why was it that this Jewish council member, who had probably kept his faith a secret up until this point, was now the only one who summoned the courage to go and ask Pilate for the privilege of burying Jesus? Well, Luke doesn't tell us. All we know is that he was the only one who did. Joseph was the lone pallbearer. And we should probably read that fact with not a little bit of disappointment. Some of you have been to funerals, perhaps, where there weren't even enough men present to carry the casket. And it can be a sad thing to see. And so it is here. 
But let me also point out that even though only one man showed up to bear Jesus Paul, the fact that this one man did show up was a glorious, remarkable, beautiful thing. Because notice what Luke tells us about Joseph. Unlike most of the members of the Jewish council, this Joseph was a good and righteous man, verse 50. And that good and righteous character evidenced itself by the fact that he had not consented in verse 51 when the rest of the council had determined that they were going to put Jesus to death. You remember they had this discussion at the end of chapter 22. Well, apparently, Joseph raised his hand and voted no. We don't know if he made a loud protest at that Jewish phase of Jesus' trial or if he simply and quietly raised his hand and voted no, but apparently he was not in favor of executing Jesus. Indeed, Matthew tells us that Joseph had, somewhere along the way, become a disciple of Jesus. And this was the man who went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus in verse 52. And it's amazing, isn't it? Joseph was an important man. He was a man of considerable position and clout in the city of Jerusalem and therefore in Judaism in general. He was a member of the council. And so he stood to lose an awful lot by voting in Jesus' favor that Thursday night. But even if he could have survived that dissenting vote on the Thursday night, there would be no turning back if he actually went on Friday afternoon and asked Pilate for Jesus' body. And that must have gone through his mind. If a member of the Jewish council actually pays Jesus the honor of clothing and burying his body, it'll be political suicide. Joseph knew that, and perhaps it would have been literal suicide as well. Remember, this man whom he wants to honor has just been crucified. And yet, Joseph not only honored him, but he did it alone. Now, I know the women followed at a distance and eventually showed up at the tomb, and I told you that Nicodemus eventually came on the scene and helped out as well, but it was Joseph who walked alone into Pilate's courtyard and asked for the body in verse 52. And it was Joseph who apparently alone climbed the ladder up the cross to remove Jesus' body and to bring it down, verse 53. And it was Joseph also who by himself seems to have carried Jesus to the tomb there were no crowds for joseph to hide in any longer at this point he was out on a limb by himself and everyone who was anyone was there that day and knew what was going on knew what joseph was doing but joseph didn't care he wasn't going to follow jesus in secret anymore he was going to honor him he was going to stand for him come what may and he would do it alone if he had to and again i say he's a wonderful example to us Are you sometimes afraid to stand up for Jesus or to speak for him or to make your faith in him known? I am. But we surely don't have as much to lose as Joseph had to lose, do we? And yet he, who had so much to lose, finally decided that he couldn't be silent and secret anymore. And we have to do the same, don't we? Yes, if we do the right thing, if we honor the Lord Jesus, some people are going to oppose us. But I'm certain that Joseph never regretted climbing that ladder in front of all of his political peers. I'm sure that he never second-guessed his decision to drape Jesus' body over his shoulders and carry him through the crowds and to the tomb, proud to be called a disciple. I don't think he ever had any doubts that this was the right thing to do. On the other hand, what do you think his dreams might have been like had he chickened out that Friday afternoon? Had he continued keeping his faith a secret? Do you think he'd ever completely have conquered the regret of having left Jesus' body hanging there, perhaps to be further abused by the scoffers, perhaps to begin rotting in the afternoon heat? 
or perhaps simply to have been thrown by the Roman soldiers into a mass grave? Thankfully, we don't have to spend much time contemplating that, do we? Because Joseph didn't falter. He stood up and he did what was right, come what may. And Joseph is a moving illustration of Christian courage, of what every Christian should be like. We simply must be like this man. We simply must be willing to do the right thing, even if people will hate us for it, even if we may suffer for it, even if we have to go it alone. We have to do the right thing. And, you know, sometimes we may have to do the right thing alone in our family or in our workplace. There are not many Josephs in the world, are there? And so if you're going to be one, you may have to be one sometimes all by yourself. I pray that you will be. pray that you will be. So that's the third heading, Joseph, the pallbearer. Now fourthly consider with me the tomb in verses 53 through 55. The tomb. What does Luke tell us about where Jesus was buried? Well, wouldn't the travel agents in Jerusalem like to know, huh? But alas, Luke does not tell us the exact location of Jesus' burial. It must not have been all that important. But what he does seem to think is important is that we be very sure that Jesus really was buried and that several eyewitnesses, both Joseph and the women in verse 55, saw exactly where he was buried and even exactly how Jesus' body was laid inside of the tomb. These witnesses knew beyond the shadow of a doubt, in other words, that Jesus really was dead and buried, that his body really was placed in a tomb, and they could pinpoint to you exactly which tomb it was. And the reason why that was important for Luke to record is because Luke is about to tell us that Jesus didn't stay in the tomb but rose from the dead. And once the disciples began making that claim, just a few days after Jesus' death, you can imagine that all sorts of questions and doubts begin to arise in people's minds, just like people doubt the resurrection today. And I believe that Luke records these details about the tomb in which Jesus was buried in order to answer some of those questions and some of those doubts, to put to rest the doubts. For instance, you can imagine that in order to cast suspicion on the reality of Jesus' resurrection, some of the naysayers may have stood at the entrance to this empty tomb and argued, well, Joseph says that he buried Jesus in this tomb, but how do we know that Joseph didn't just hide the body somewhere in order to make it look like he's risen from the dead? After all, now we know Joseph is one of the followers. So maybe he just took the body and hid it, and now he's telling us that the tomb is empty so that they can continue with this hoax. How do we know that Joseph buried Jesus' body at all, and how do we know that he buried his body in this tomb? Well, Luke answers that objection, does he not? Because he tells us that Joseph wasn't the only one who was there. A significant number of other people, verse 5, were there as well. The women saw how his body was laid. And so what Luke is doing in verse 55 is simply saying, I have a list of witnesses that I can call to the stand to testify that Jesus' body really was buried in the same tomb that's now sitting empty. Another objection, one that's still raised today, is to say that these women who went to the tomb early on the Sunday morning in Luke 24.1 and came back announcing that Christ had risen in Luke 24.9, that these women must have just gotten confused. The whole resurrection hoax is easily explained, people say. It's simple. These flighty women must have simply gone to the wrong tomb that Sunday morning. And then when they found the wrong tomb empty, they mistakenly assumed that it was the right tomb and that Jesus, therefore, wasn't there and, therefore, he must have been risen from the dead. Easy, they say. 
They just went to the wrong place. Now, that might be a plausible hypothesis, except for the fact that Luke tells us that the women saw the tomb on the Friday afternoon, verse 55. So they didn't just plug it in and their GPS got it wrong. They didn't get the wrong instructions from Joseph of Arimathea. They were already there on Friday, and so on Sunday morning, they knew where they were going. They knew which tomb they were looking for because they'd been there already. And remember also, there were several of these women. He doesn't tell us how many, but more than three. Because in chapter 24, he names three of them, but that wasn't all of them. So there's several women. And so even if one of them had gotten confused and mistaken one tomb for another, surely the mistake wouldn't be repeated by them all. So what am I saying? Simply that while Luke is not really concerned that we know exactly which empty tomb in Jerusalem is the authentic article, he's very concerned to prove that those who found it empty weren't the least bit uncertain about which tomb it was. Both Joseph of Arimathea and the women from Galilee could give eyewitness testimony, not only of the fact of the empty tomb on that first Easter Sunday morning, but they could also give eyewitness testimony of the fact that this same empty tomb was indeed the same tomb in which they left Jesus' body just a few days before. And so what we have nestled here at the end of chapter 23 is just another example of Luke's thoroughness as a historian. Luke dots his I's and crosses his T's. He presents precise details. He names names that a huckster historian would never include. Because a huckster historian is at least smart enough to know if he starts naming witnesses and pinpointing locations and giving dates and so on, then he simply puts more ammunition into the hands of those who want to prove him wrong. And that's why liars of any kind always speak in vague generalities. The more details that you begin to fabricate the easier it is for those details to be proven false and thus the only reason a historian ever starts giving specific details like Luke does is if he's absolutely sure that his records are correct and his assertions are true and so the details that Luke provides the names he names here and throughout his gospel are simply proof that he's no huckster When he tells us in the next chapter that Jesus rose from the dead, he has concrete, reliable evidence to back it up. He's a trustworthy, reliable historian. And not only should we read him that way ourselves, but we should point these things out to our skeptical friends. Tell them, Luke is reliable. Look at the facts that he lists and explain to them the logic that I just gave you. If he was making this up, he'd be as vague as possible because it would be easy for people in the first century to prove him wrong. But he lists all these facts. He must know what he's talking about. And if we can demonstrate that to our friends, then perhaps they might give the gospel a second look. And if they give it a second look, then they might just be convinced and converted. So, We've observed four things so far. The centurion's impromptu eulogy in verse 47. The unlikely mourners in verses 48 to 49. Joseph of Arimathea, the lone courageous pallbearer in verses 50 to 53. And then the details of Jesus' tomb, which in verses 53 through 55 remind us that Luke's history is precise and trustworthy. And finally, let's take a few minutes to think about the women. The women at the tomb, verses 55 and 56. We've spoken to these ladies twice already, but now it's time to give them a little bit more attention. Luke doesn't tell us their names here in chapter 23, but as I said, down in chapter 24, verse 10, he tells us that at least three of them were called Joanna and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. And then he says that there were other women as well. 
So he tells us a few of their names, but what's so interesting is not really their names, but their commitment, right? These women, we were told in verse 49, had been with Jesus since the early days in Galilee, some of them perhaps for his whole three-year public ministry. These women had followed Jesus a long distance, nearly all of it on foot. And now, when nearly every other disciple has gone into hiding, these women have followed Jesus all the way to his graveside, making sure to mark the spot in verse 55 so that they might come back after the Sabbath has ended and anoint his body with spices and perfumes, as was the custom. And notice this. These women had done almost all of these various things behind the scenes. As I said already, we don't even know most of their names. And even the names Luke mentions in chapter 24 are scarcely ever mentioned again in his records. They don't seem to have ever been given great tasks to do. These women were not leaders in the way, the normal sense of the term. They're leading by their example, but they're not leading with any authority. They didn't have the political clout or the physical strength to do what Joseph of Arimathea had done for Jesus. They weren't to be named as apostles or sent out as missionaries like Peter and James and John and the rest, but they were faithful. And in these last verses, when there was no company of devout men who might bury Jesus, there was a company of devout women. And what an example, again, they are to us. First, they're an example of true biblical femininity. They're an example, as Luke honors them here in the gospel, of how the Bible exalts the role of women and honors the role of women rather than demeaning women or ignoring women. They're also an example of biblical femininity in that they were willing simply to be who God called them to be as women. Not necessarily fierce defenders of the faith, but faithful disciples of Jesus. Not pushing themselves to the front, but not lagging behind either. Not preaching and leading like Peter, but not stumbling and running away like Peter either. Just faithful, godly, humble, strong, committed, biblical women. And here they were, as darkness was about to usher in the beginning of the Sabbath day, marking the spot of Jesus' burial in verse 55, and then going home to prepare the spices and perfumes in verse 56, so that on the Sunday morning they might be up early and be at the tomb as soon as they possibly can to perform a final act of kindness for their beloved teacher. And there are a couple of sub-points to notice to this beautiful biblical commitment to Christ. One is these ladies' concern for the Sabbath. When I read in verse 56 that they waited a whole day before preparing Jesus' body for burial, when I read that, I hesitate a little bit. I say to myself, was that the right thing? Wouldn't this have been one of those kinds of occasions that Jesus was often speaking about where because of the necessity of the moment and because of the opportunity to show mercy, a person could and actually should have performed work on the Sabbath day? Wouldn't this be one of those cases? Were the women right to leave Jesus' burial rites unfinished for a full 24 hours simply in order to keep the Sabbath? Well, I don't know what all went through their minds as darkness approached that Friday evening. I don't know if they ever wondered whether this might be one of those cases where working on the Sabbath would actually please the Lord. But what I do know is that Luke doesn't criticize them for their decision. And a few days later when Jesus rose from the dead and these women were the first ones to see him, he doesn't criticize them either. And also what I know is that all throughout the Gospels, these mostly anonymous women are constantly held up for honor and imitation. 
And I simply point out to you that if in an occasion like this, in a pinch like this, they rested on the Sabbath, then maybe you and I should be more conscientious to do the same ourselves. And then notice one other thing about these women, namely their commitment to Jesus' body. His body. They didn't see his body as an old lump of clay now that Jesus had separated from it. They weren't like a lot of modern people, in other words. They weren't like I used to be either. I can remember as a younger man saying to my parents, and maybe I said this to Toby as well, something like this, when I die, I don't care what you do with my body. After all, I won't be there, and it's just going to be an empty shell at that point. So who cares what anyone does with my body? That was my attitude. That's the attitude of many people, many Christian people. But that attitude is positively anti-Christian. Nowhere in the scriptures will you find that kind of thinking process, that kind of flippancy about the human body, even once it's dead. According to the Bible, rather, God values our bodies, even our dead bodies. And we see that in the fact, not only the way people treated dead bodies, but in the fact that God himself is going to raise them from the dead someday. We're not going to live forever as disembodied spirits floating out on the clouds somewhere, are we? Now, yes, until Christ comes, we're absent from the body. But when Christ comes, we'll be given imperishable bodies. Our bodies will rise from the dead, just like Jesus. And so, though these women's faith in the resurrection wasn't quite what it should have been, they weren't as hopeful as they should have been here, they knew enough, at least, to value Jesus' body. And we should learn from them, I think. We should learn from them to value the human body because God values it, even once it's dead. These women value Jesus' body, as I say, first of all, because all human bodies are valuable. They're part of God's plan for redemption. But then, along with Joseph of Arimathea, they value Jesus' body all the more because it was Jesus' body, right? And that's the main thing, isn't it? That's the thought and the challenge with which we close. Do you value Jesus so much that you will be willing to serve him like these women, even if it's only always behind the scenes? Do you value Jesus so much that you will keep serving him like these women when perhaps more prominent servants seem to fall by the wayside? Do you value Jesus so much that though there is much that you cannot do, you will nevertheless, like these women, do what you can? Do you value Jesus? There weren't many people at Jesus' graveside on that final Friday evening, but the ones who were there were quite a remarkable and praiseworthy bunch, weren't they? And so let us make sure that whether we are many or whether we are few, that we are remarkable, that we are praiseworthy too.